Good afternoon. Now, just a few items to discuss before we begin this afternoon. Uh, we've decided to change things up just a little. Why? I'm the first to admit that I'm typically in the mood for a long winter's nap, especially after the pizza we just had at lunch. My eyes get heavy, I begin to yawn, and my attention fades. Therefore, instead of utilizing our afternoon with an exhortation slash lecture, we'll be spending our time with more of a Sunday school format geared for all ages. What exactly does that mean for you? Well, in order to keep everyone's attention, we have designed our comments accordingly. To help move things along, we request the following. Number one, please look up each scripture that we will be discussing. Number two, we have asked certain brethren to read scriptures out loud. To those brethren, when you are called upon, please stand up and read clearly and with authority. Number three, we have planted numerous questions throughout our remarks. Feel free to answer them out loud. And fourth, our theme chapter is Psalms 72. We are not doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of this chapter, but we do ask that you keep your place here because this will be a reference point throughout our comments. Let us begin. Our main theme this afternoon will be the kingdom. However, with this subject matter, we have chosen to divide our comments into two sections. Number one, the previous kingdoms of this world. And number two, the future kingdom of God. The scriptures declare that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Since God has predetermined such a marvelous revolution, a revolution that must necessarily take time and require perfect wisdom and omnipotent power, it is reasonable to believe that he has an arranged program to be followed in its execution. God is a God of order. His plan is being worked out, and what to us may seem as confusion is but the means of the master builder erecting a beautiful city whose builder and maker is God. Now we thought we would start off with a few questions to give, to give everyone a better idea of our subject matter and a better understanding of where our focus should be in these last days. Most, if not all, of these questions are ones we have heard and studied many times before. However, it is crucial that we do not lose sight of what they mean and represent. Our comments today will help answer the following key questions. What does the word kingdom mean or represent? What man first established a kingdom for himself? Has a kingdom of God ever existed on the earth? What is the mission of the future kingdom of God? And what are the six elements of the kingdom of God? Now, if it is truly all of our hope and all of our desire to enter into the kingdom of God, shouldn't we be able to visualize, comprehend, and understand what our hope is and what the kingdom of God represents? In Psalm 72, which we just read, we'll read verses 1 and 3 again. Psalm 72, 1 and 3, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness.
And we come to our first question. Can anyone tell me what the word kingdom means or represents? What does the word kingdom mean or represent? Pardon me? Dominion. Dominion. Anybody else? Okay. When anybody thinks about the kingdom, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Any thoughts? The word kingdom signifies the power, rule, or authority of a king. From the old English king and dom, D-O-M, rule or jurisdiction. It can refer to the following. The state or condition of being a king. To the territory or country over which a king rules. To the collective body of those who are under his dominion. Therefore, the phrase, the kingdom of God, refers to the rule or government of God or to the territory or people under his jurisdiction. The phrase occurs many times in the New Testament, as does also the equivalent phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Now this can be made complicated by other religions when in fact it is actually very basic. Since God is in heaven and rules from heaven, his kingdom is spoken of as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. With that being said, what was the subject matter of the gospel the apostles preached? What was the subject matter of the gospel the apostles preached? Okay. We got uh, Brother Robbie to read. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're going to use Robbie for all of these. Uh, Luke chapter 9, read verses 1 and 2. And he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then we'll read Acts chapter 9, or chapter 19, verse 8. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Thank you. Now, from these examples, we see that the kingdom of God was what constituted the gospel preached by Christ and by his disciples. The disciples did not teach a world full of kingdoms of men, but instead the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we just defined the word kingdom by reviewing the meaning of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. However, we did not define the other type of kingdom. What other type of kingdom is there? What other type of kingdom can there be? Kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men, or more accurately, the kingdom of sin. Now going back to one of our earlier questions. What man first established a kingdom for himself? What man first established a kingdom for himself? 
It was Nimrod who first established a kingdom for himself, a kingdom that would be ruled by men and not God. The Tower of Babel whose top may reach unto heaven. For centuries, men ruled their kingdoms according to their own wishes and invented their own religions as a convenient substitute for faith in the word of the one true God. The ancient kingdom of Egypt is a most interesting illustration of this. They worship the wisdom of the serpent. This animal wisdom or craftiness was chosen over the revealed word of God and its doctrine, ye shall not surely die, became embodied in the false notion of the immortal soul. This teaching of the immortality of the soul, of a continued existence of some kind after the death of the body, has been the trademark of those religions within the kingdoms of men. Thus it is the kingdoms of men and their various manifestations down the centuries that have overrun the Middle East, claiming it as their own. Babylon, Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans have each ruled over this land. They were followed by the Christianized Roman Empire, then the Islamic peoples, the Crusaders, the Ottoman Turks, and the British. All of them have been the kingdoms of men, and therefore kingdoms ruled by the mind of the flesh, which is at enmity with God. Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I'll read Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We would now like to take a few minutes to talk about the promised land spoken of in the Old Testament. It is in the book of Genesis that we read about Abram being called out of Ur of the Chaldees and so out of this kingdom of sin. Nearly 4,000 years ago, God called Abram to the land of Canaan, making to him specific promises. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and read verses 1 through 3. Brother Herb, it's going to have quite a stretch here. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Okay, promises were actually made to Abraham on five different occasions. On five different occasions. Abraham to become a great nation, which Brother Herb just read in Genesis chapter 12. Let's also read Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Genesis chapter 13, 14 through 17. And the Lord said unto Abram, After that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that 
If a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Abraham and his seed are promised the land which he sees forever. Now Genesis 15, Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Ruffians, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The land is described from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Now turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 and read verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. The covenant requires that a relationship be formed between God, Abraham, and the seed. And one more, Genesis 22 verses 17 and 18. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. There we have it. On five different occasions, Abraham to become a great nation. Abraham and his seed are promised a land which he sees forever. The land is described from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. The covenant requires that a relationship be formed between God, Abraham, and the seed. And Abraham's seed be multiplied and to possess the gate of his enemies. The land promised is not just a tiny piece of land of modern Israel. The land promised to Abraham and his seed is stretched across the entire Middle East from Egypt to the Euphrates River. In addition to promises which have not been realized in full, but which will ultimately, ultimately be completely fulfilled, a prediction was made to Abraham that his immediate descendants should be strangers in a strange land and after about 400 years should return to the land of Canaan. This came to pass just as predicted. Jacob and his family went to Egypt. And after they had multiplied into a numerous people and had endured affliction as Pharaoh's slaves, the people were brought back to the land of Canaan. There were marvelous manifestations of the power of God and deliverance of the Israelites by the hands of Moses and Aaron. Now on the way to Canaan, the following events occurred. Moses gave the people a code of laws which he received direct from God. A proper worship of God was organized with a priesthood headed by Aaron. God formed the people into a nation and ruled them as king. After 40 years of wandering, God brought them to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Here their civil government was placed in the hands of specially appointed judges and their religious government remained with the priests. As time went on, the people grew tired of being ruled by a king 
they could not physically see. They asked Samuel, the last of the judges, that a king should be given to them like the kings of the surrounding nations, who should personally and visibly be at their head in all their activities. Samuel was very upset by this, but he informed God of their request. God answered, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Saul was chosen as the first king, but because he disobeyed a special command from God through Samuel, he was rejected and the kingdom was taken from his family. After Saul's death in the battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, David became king. After reigning seven and a half years at Hebron and having taken Jerusalem from the Canaanites, he made that his capital for the rest of his reign and resided on Mount Zion. David recognized that he was ruling for God, that the kingdom was really God's kingdom, and that he was only appointed by God to rule for him. And in his rule, he was a man after God's own heart. After David, there was Solomon. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Brother Steve, I believe you have this one. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we'll read verses 23 through 25. Solomon sat on, the, sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and was prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders and the mighty men, and also the sons, all the sons of King David, submitted themselves to King Solomon. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been it was at this time that the kingdom of God first existed on this earth. However, Solomon fell from the worship of God to offer incense to the gods of the Canaanites. Two of Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, split the kingdom in two, now called Israel and Judah. Through many different kings, good and bad, the two kingdoms existed side by side for about a century and a half, at times being at war with each other and with the surrounding nations. Eventually, the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of Israel, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took Jerusalem and led the people captive to his capital. The deportation of Judah was about 600 years before Christ. The Israelites are not recorded as returning to their land, but after the Medo-Persians had conquered Babylon, Cyrus granted permission to the captives of Judah to return to Jerusalem. Many of the captives returned and the temple was rebuilt for the worship of God, but the kingdom was never restored. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 21. Now here God said through Ezekiel to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Here we have Ezekiel chapter 21. We'll read verses 25 through 27. And Brother Mark, I believe you have this. wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, for iniquity shall have an end. Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem, and take off the crown, 
This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, and abate him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it him. Now this land, the promised land, has many who claim it as their own by divine right. Who are they? Who claims this land by divine right? What groups? <laughs> we have uh, Israel, the Arabs. Who else? Who else claims this as their land by divine right? We'll group them with the Arabs. Christians. Catholics. I like that better. Alright, we have the Jews as natural descendants of Abraham through Isaac claim it as theirs. The Arabs claim to be the seed of Abraham through Ishmael say it is theirs. And then the Catholics trace their origins through early Christianity and Constantine's legacy say they are the rightful custodians of the holy place. Pulling a quote from the Vatican in 1948, Modern Zionism is not the true heir of biblical Israel, but a secular state. Therefore, the Holy Land and its sacred sites belong to Christianity, the true Israel. Now, Gentile governments, of course, will scorn any claim to the land based upon the Scriptures. Thus, the great issue of the ages will develop and the controversy of Zion will come to a head. The events described in Ezekiel 38 will settle the controversy in the land itself. And the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, will take control of the situation, establishing His authority there. Once this happens, Scripture shows how the King will demand the subjections of the rest of the world, but His ultimatum will be resisted by the kings of the earth. Let's turn our Bibles to Psalms chapter 2. We'll read Psalms chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. And Brother Ernie, I believe this is you. Psalms chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, Cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Apostle Paul sought national deliverance for Israel as something to be accomplished in the future. It was still a matter of hope. A hope that we find echoed through the Psalms and the prophets as they speak of Israel's restoration, salvation, and glory. Let's turn back to Psalm 72. We'll read verses 4 through 7. Psalm 72, 4 through 7. That's Brother Ernie again. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. 
He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. Now this should be part of our hope as it has been for Christadelphians from years past. As we look for the complete restoration of Israel and the final overthrow of the kingdoms of men. And we would now like to turn our attention to the future kingdom of God. We've got another question. What is the mission of the future kingdom of God? What is the mission? I believe Aaron might have pointed to this, uh, to this earlier, but what is the mission of the future kingdom of God? So the whole earth. Anything else? Be more specific? Yeah. Alright. We are told that the kingdom of God soon to be reestablished upon this earth will cover 1,000 years. And it is my belief that sin and death will still exist for we are told that the kingdom's mission is to break in pieces and consume all kingdoms and to fill the whole earth in ruling over all. However, this is not a job that will be done in a day, a week, or a month, as Aaron pointed to earlier. For its full accomplishment, God has allotted 1,000 years. The work to be done is great, but not too great for the forces of the kingdom. All of these great nations and republics are to be put down and their millions of armed defenders cut up and dispersed. A kingdom is composed of certain key elements, and it cannot exist in the full sense unless all of the component parts are united. What are the six elements associated with this kingdom? We're going to go through these, make sure we get all of them. I heard a king. Territory. Territory. King. Is there one back there? Subjects. 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 Laws. Laws. Capital. Capital. Laws. You're close. Border. Yeah, I, I kind of heard it. Uh, we'll say royal associates. He said associates. I was looking for royal associates. So we'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> the six elements associated with the kingdom. Territory a king, royal associates, laws, subjects, and a capital. These are the parts that must be combined before a kingdom can be said to be established. What is the territory of the kingdom? What is the territory of the kingdom? Alright, in preaching the gospel to Abraham, God made this promise to him. Let's turn our Bible to Genesis chapter 22. We'll read 16 through 18. And Brother Adam, I believe this is, this is yours. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, 
because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now the kingdom is to be a worldwide dominion. Again in Numbers we read Numbers chapter 14 verse 21. Numbers chapter 14 verse 21. That's Adam again. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Now here are promises that have never been fulfilled, and the fulfillment of which necessitates the establishment of a divine government upon the earth. How otherwise can all nations of the earth be blessed, and the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord, than by the establishment of a kingdom that will rule the nations by divine laws? Let's turn back to Psalm 72. And I'll read verses 8 and 9. Psalm 72, 8 and 9. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. Now, who will be the king over all the earth? Who will be the king? In Psalm 72, 10 and 11, The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. When the birth of Jesus was heralded to the world, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 2. And Joey, I believe this is yours. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. Now Jesus of Nazareth will be king over all the earth. Christ, then, is the king of the kingdom of God, and the scriptures abound with proof. Luke chapter 1. Verses 32 and 33. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and in his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Acts 2, verse 30. The good confession that Jesus himself witnessed before Pontius Pilate was that he was a king. When in answer to Pilate's question, Art thou a king? Jesus answered him, Thou sayest it. Okay, who are the royal associates? Who are the royal associates? Thanks. In considering this question, we come to see how the kingdom of God stands related to human redemption. For we shall find that the gospel is God's invitation to man to become inheritors of his kingdom as kings and priests to reign with Christ. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. That's Luke chapter 22. We'll read verses 29 through 30. 
And Brother Butch, I believe uh, you have these. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And we'll go to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. What's that? To whom this is referring here? It's just disciples. Okay. Thank you. That's what they were telling One of them dropped out, of course. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Would you like to explain that verse, Brother Butch? That covers the rest of it. Okay. Now let's read one more. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Revelation 3, verse 21. Thank you. Now from these testimonies, it is clear that the royal associates with Christ in His kingdom, the kingdom of God, will be all the redeemed from among men from the time of Adam down to the second appearing of Christ. These will be those who have been redeemed by His blood, His saints. Our next question, what will be the nature of the laws? What will be the nature of the laws? This one's a little little tricky to, to pinpoint an answer to, but what will be the nature of the laws? Equitable, Equitable righteous, just. just. Divine origin. Divine origin. I like that. In answer to this, it is necessary to remind you that concerning the kingdom of God, we are commanded to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The laws will consist of the will of God, revealed through His Son. The laws being from God and therefore righteous will meet the universal requirements of mankind in a way that will bless all nations. This will result in universal laws and universal worship. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Brother Steve, I believe this is you. Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now with a universal empire, it follows that there will be one law and one religion. Isaiah says, Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There will not be one law for the rich and another for the poor, neither will there be injustice in the enforcement of the law. In the future age, Man will not be allowed to worship God according to when, where, 
or how or if he wants to, he will be compelled to conform with the divine requirements. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. None will be exempt from this law. It will be brought forth by such demonstrations of divine power that none will be able to resist it or ignore it for any lengthened period. Should any mortal subject determine to conduct worship in their own fashion, the effort would be deadly. For the scriptures give us examples of everything from a famine to a plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. In the face of famine, the people would soon be brought to their knees and would be led to seek mercy at the hands of the Lord. The psalmist says, again in chapter 72, read verses 1 and 2 and then follow that with verses 12 through 14. Psalm 72, verses 1 and 2. Give the king thy judgment, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. And then verses 12 through 14. For he shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare thee poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their souls from deceit and violence, and precious shall, be, shall their blood be in his sight. Now who will be the subjects of the kingdom? Mortals. It shall come to pass that the Jews will be restored to Palestine and become the immediate mortal subjects of the kingdom of God. And every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall be mortal subjects as well. The mortal subjects will be Israel in the flesh and all of the other surviving nations. With that being said, the second coming of Jesus Christ will have tremendous consequences for the generation that witnesses it. Every aspect of human life, social, religious, and economic, will come under a new directing power. An important change in the world under Christ's rule will be the recognition of God and of the responsibility of giving praise and thanks to Him for His goodness and of obedience to His commandments. In Psalm 72, verse 15, And He, and he shall live, and to Him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. Sin, death, and sacrificial worship will exist in the kingdom until the end of the thousand years. Gifts and sacrifices, therefore, will all that time be necessary because of sin. And being necessary, there must be a high priest to offer them for men to God in the place appointed. All nations shall flow into the Lord's house, which shall be called a house of prayer, for all people, the offerings of whose flocks and herds shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, saith Jehovah, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Let us now turn to Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 and 20, 20 through 23, to get a better description of what exactly will take place. And Brother Aaron, I believe you have these. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8. Verses 20 through 23. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all languages of the nations, and shall take hold of the church and the Jews, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now this prophetic testimony shows that there will be a pilgrimage from all parts of the earth from one year's end to another in which all nations will take their turn. It will be periodical and take place in every case once a year. In the establishment of such an era of blessing, divine wisdom will prevail. Men will acknowledge God's goodness and the words of God through Habakkuk will be fulfilled. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. Habakkuk 2 verse 14. Okay, now during the millennium, the peoples who are the subjects of God's kingdom will be mortal, but the excellence of the conditions under which men will then live will prolong life. The tenure of life will once again run to unusual length. In the coming age, the whole of mankind will understand the knowledge of God's salvation, and this will result in a great harvest of men and women attaining to immortality at the end of the millennium. The final stages of the work of redemption are revealed. There will be a final resurrection for those who have died during the millennium. Those then raised together with the living will be judged. The faithful who by faith and obedience have qualified for eternal life will receive immortality even as those who have reigned with Christ were given it at the beginning of His reign. On the other hand, the unfaithful die and pass into the oblivion of the second death. At the end of the thousand years, the great mission of Christ will have been accomplished. His prayer will be realized. And one more verse from Brother Aaron, John chapter 17, verse 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And finally, our last element and our last question. Where will the capital of the kingdom be? In Psalm 72, 16, there should be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. Now we are told numerous times in scriptures that the capital will reside in Jerusalem. The prophets make many references to Jerusalem in connection with the promises of the restoration of the kingdom. Let's turn our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3 and we'll read verse 17. I believe this is uh, Brother Pat's. Jeremiah 3.17 At that time they shall cause Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem 
neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. And let's uh, follow that up with Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and 35. Okay, now we have just completed our review of the six elements that constitute the kingdom of God. These, when combined, will form a divine system of government as literal and as real as any kingdom that has ever existed. With the whole earth as the territory, Jesus, the Son of God, as the Christ or King, the redeemed, immortal saints as His royal associates, the will of God revealed through His Son as the laws, all nations of the earth as the mortal subjects, and Jerusalem, the city of the great king, as the capital. In this glorious state of things, the saints redeemed from among men from the downfall of Adam the first to the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets by Adam the second. They will individually and as a happy company of divine princes realize the salvation now preached in the saints concerning the kingdom of God. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 and read verse 34. Brother Bob, I believe this is yours. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now all nations, all nations, although mortal, will rejoice in the national salvation which is also involved in the same gospel that God preached to Abraham when he said, let's turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now, in summary, we have discussed previous kingdoms and the future kingdom of God while answering the following questions. What does the word kingdom mean or represent? Has the kingdom of God ever existed on the earth? What man first established a kingdom for himself? What is the mission of the future kingdom of God? And what are the six elements of the kingdom of God? Let us be clear these tremendous and awe-inspiring events are not the beginning to a reign of God in men's hearts with the reception into heaven of each believer through death. They are the foreordained doom of human rule to make way for the inauguration of a divine realm upon the earth. My determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy." Then follows the kingdom of God. He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge or rule the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. The kingdom of God will become the means of individual and national redemption to the children of Adam's race when the Lord shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes 
of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Thus are interwoven in all scriptures the promises and prophecies of a kingdom of God which cannot be moved, that will take the place of the shaken kingdoms of the world which stagger to and fro like a drunken man. Finally, the seer of Patmos says, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now in closing, let's uh, turn to Psalm 72 and read verses 17 through 19. Psalm 72 verses 17 through 19. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in Him. All nations shall call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Thank you.